is calling for. Holiness, brokenness, those things which are not highlighted very much, um, definitely not in our society, and sadly not in many of our churches as well. And um, yet in order for us to be used rightly and correctly, um, we must be used as clean and holy vessels. None of you, none of you like drinking out of a dirty cup. None of you like eating on a dirty plate or sitting in a spot that has not been cleaned. You do not, some of us, boy, we will freak out if we go into a restroom, a bathroom that has not been cleaned. And so these are things that are used um, within daily life. So can I ask, why do we think God is okay with using dirty vessels? When we have the opportunity to be cleaned. See, it's one thing if you live in a place where there's no water, there's no capability to clean. But when you live in an area and you have capability to clean the vessels, you clean them. We either put them in our dishwashers or like my mother used to say, she would let one of her seven dishwashers wash the dishes. Couldn't use the dishwasher, but they still got cleaned. And so we grew up going, you know, hey, if there is a utensil that is dirty at a restaurant, we hand it back. Not to be put on the shelf, but either get me a clean one or clean this one. And I think God is calling for us. If we want to be used rightly, we need to be cleaned correctly. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. No, he's not saying that. But that where we can be clean, get clean. Where we can be washed, be washed so that you can be used correctly. Amen. This morning, we are going to be looking at John chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And again, we are going along in this series, this gospel-shaped church, and we're looking at <clears throat> a serving church in a selfish world. But actually, the title that I'm calling for this particular text is Jesus, Ultimate Servant and Example for the church in a self-serving world. Jesus, ultimate servant and example for the church in a self-serving world. If you would stand with me, we're going to read together John chapter 13 and it's verses 1 through 17. <clears throat> and if you think as long, that's all right. You probably got more reading for this for homework if you're in school. I'm sure you did. You probably read more than this when you watched the credits to the movie, although no one watches credits anymore to movies. We will make it through this promise. So John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, if you're reading in your Bibles, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you are following along in the centerfold, that's what's there as well. <clears throat> Now, let's read together. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet and my head, Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. 
for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Father, may we hear, understand, and respond obediently to your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Boy, this particular text is packed and is loaded with so much here. But what we want to focus on is this whole issue of Jesus as the pattern for the servant of God. Um, and I mean, an example, and that word example that he uses even down here more resembles pattern than it resembles anything else. <clears throat> he is the pattern. How many of you guys now, you go and date yourself, how many of you guys remember the old simplicity patterns when you could make things? Come on, raise your hand. The old simplicity, I do as well. I remember the time, my sister's going to kill me. I remember the time my sister made her first pattern. She didn't quite follow all the patterns. And so when she finished that blouse, one sleeve was shorter than the other. And I just remember her being shocked. And she said, I thought I followed the pattern. And of course, we as brothers let her know, well, obviously you didn't. <laughs> but at least she attempted. And of course, she went on to make other things and became a wonderful seamstress and be able to, to, to make other things. But I just remember that first time is that, is that the pattern was there. But if you don't follow the pattern, what you may come out with, you may be shocked with or shocked by. And so this morning, we are, we are shown here in John, we are shown this pattern for, for life as a servant of God. And we are being shown this pattern by the ultimate servant of God, the Lord Jesus himself. And there are so many things here that I want to look at, but there are four things that we're going to focus on this morning. This is not exhaustive. We could spend weeks in this. We're not, but we could, um, just because there's so much here that we could learn. But there are four things that we're going to look at this morning from this text. We're going to look at the attitude of the ultimate servant, the attitude of the ultimate servant. We're going to look at the actions of the ultimate servant, the actions of the ultimate servant. We're going to look at the opposition to the ultimate servant, the opposition to the ultimate servant, and then lastly, the example or the pattern left by the ultimate, um, the ultimate servant, the example of or the pattern left by the ultimate servant. And so let's just get started with the, with the first point. The attitude of the ultimate servant. We have to understand the setting here. Now, we know that the, the, the Passover, they were, they were ready to have the Passover meal. And as you read all the other Gospels, Jesus told them what to do to get set and to find the room, which we know is the upper room, and to prepare it for them to have the Passover. And so they were all set. The only thing that they did not have ready was what would happen in many homes when you would have guests there. <clears throat> and that is because we are not talking about paved streets like 52nd Street or like our driveway when you came down or like our parking lot that's paved, you know, you are talking about uh, dirt roads. I don't know how many of you have lived around or have been around dirt roads. I know for years when we went down to visit my grandparents um, and, and up until the, I want to say the mid-70s on my grandparents on my mother's side, they were in such a rural part of North Carolina that when you pulled down their road, which of course there was family all up and down that road, that's all it was. So you would drive by cousin, auntie, uncle, I mean, all on that road, but the road was dirt. And it was hard packed dirt, but it was dirt. So you could walk on it. But one of the things that would happen, even with our modern shoes, one of the things that would happen is that your feet would get dirty. Now, back then, they weren't 
they weren't um, they weren't sporting Nikes and 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 LeBrons and and Currys and all these shoes. They had these open flat sandals. And as they walked on these roads, their feet would get dirty. And so when you came to someone's house as a guest to eat, one of the things that they would have is they would have a servant, one of the most menial, the lowest of low servants, would have the task of washing your feet. As a matter of fact, tradition says within the Jewish culture that they didn't even want Jewish servants and slaves to do that. They reserved that for Greek slaves. They wouldn't even want a member of their own um, um, culture and ethnicity that they would take the Greeks who the Jews saw as not as holy as them because it was so low and so menial of a task that no one wanted to do it. And so here you have Jesus calling for these men to set it up, and they set it up, but there was no menial servant around. And so no self-respecting cultural Jewish person was going to stoop to wash another colleague's feet, which is what happened. And so they entered this place, and there was no feet, there was no foot washing. And so that sets the scene. And so the scene now is they get into this place. Christ has prepared everything that they need. And I, I firmly believe Christ also prepared for no one to be there. He could have. I mean, come on. If he can tell them to go down to the lake and there's a fish, open his mouth and you'll find the amount for the taxes that you need to pay. He can provide someone to wash feet. But he didn't. And I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing because he was going to have a lesson out of it later on, one that they would remember so much that John is writing about it toward the end of his life because, you know, the Gospel of John was written toward the end of the first century. And John is now writing back as he remembers things. He's not writing as this is happening. We know we don't get the Gospels and these things in real time. We're getting them now. John is looking back on this life. Of course, the Spirit is bringing things in, in detail back to his remembrance. But these are one of those things that John did not forget. He is the only one that records this. And so he sets the scene in motion for us. And so the scene is Jesus has prepared everything. And they get up here, and it was ready for the feast of the Passover, but the attitude of the servant is seen because of what's happening around him. Look at what's happening. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, so they were sitting down to have the Passover feast, and Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of his world and return to his father. Understand the setting of that. All along, Jesus had been saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And notice the shift. For those of you who have taken the Johannine class, I know Elder Charles Wright have, and for those of you that are in the class right now, there's five of us that are here that are taking that class right now. We know that John is separated into two books, in essence, or two sections. The first one that we've learned, um, Oh, John McLeod knows this one too, is, is, is the section of the book of signs and all these signs pointing toward Jesus as the Messiah. We know that the second half of this one is what's called the book of glory. It is now where Jesus is going to be glorified, but the way in which he's going to be glorified is not how we see glorification, which is why everyone tripped over it, including his disciples. His glorification would be through his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, but the crucifixion was how he was going to be glorified. He was accomplishing the Father's will all the way to this, and this was its culmination. The reward was the resurrection, but the mission was to die for the sins of the world. And so now he starts off, chapter 13 begins what is considered the section on the book of glory, and it starts off by saying, John is writing specifically, he says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, he changes the language now, his hour had come. It was time for him to die. The scripture puts it eloquently, to depart this world and to return to the Father. I, that's nothing strange. We use that many times when we talk about our dearly departed. We weren't talking about someone that got on the train and left. We're talking about someone that passed away and said that he was going to depart this world and return to his father. But it sets his attitude. It says, 
Those that he, he says, loving his own. Now, understand the position, loving his own, although he was leaving the world. He wasn't leaving his own. And, and, and the world, in this sense, when they talk about the world, he wasn't just talking about this planet, this ball in the middle of space. The world was that humanity that is lost and is without Christ, headed to a lost eternity. And so he was leaving, although he would die, so that they may be able to go where he would be going. And so that they would be able to have this relationship with God. And so what's happening now is he is saying that he is getting ready to die because now is the time. But he wanted to make sure that we understood that Jesus loved his disciples completely and to the end. Look at the attitude that he had. He says, the attitude is that he was leaving this world. He was leaving the people that were around, but he was loving his own. Understand that of Christ, too, is that, that, that his attitude as a servant is that he never lost sight of the love that he was to have for those that he came to save and to serve. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to to, to be served, but to serve. And many times I think we flip that as believers today. We say, I came to be served, God, not to serve. Now, we don't say that with our lips. We wouldn't dare let that come out as good followers of Christ. But boy, our attitudes, I came to be served. And so as we see his attitude was that he loved his own And he said he loved them to the end, or he loved them all the way to its intended end, which would be death on a cross. That his love didn't stop short of the mission that God had, that his love didn't stop short because of what was going on around him. His love didn't stop short because the mission required pain to happen on his part. And for many of us, our love stops short when the pain gets heavy. For many of us, we want to call it quits when it gets too hot, too heavy, too painful. And Jesus has given us this example and this pattern. He says, even though I know what's coming, my love continues. Pattern. Example. Well, the next thing he shows is his attitude is this attitude of loving publicly and thoroughly versus Satan working to betray and working secretly. Well, he had to know it couldn't be secret. He knew Jesus knew because he knew who Jesus was. I'm just surprised at Judas. After all that Jesus saw, Judas is sitting here as if Jesus doesn't know. Dude, he is the one that has demonstrated that he controls nature. He controls the spiritual world. He knows what people are thinking. He responds to people's thoughts. You think it, he responds. And so he's sitting there as if Jesus doesn't know that he is setting this up to betray him. But I want you to see the attitude that Jesus had. He publicly loves even knowing that there is a betrayer sitting right in his midst. See, for you and I, if we had that capability, if we could read minds and thoughts, boy, I'm telling you, it would be on. (laughs) Judas would walk in the door and folk would be like, I got something for you. (laughs) Oh, you thought you were hiding from me. Or would set it up for Judas and, and, and look, let him sit close and you get close and say, now I know what you're going to do, boy. You better be careful. But he didn't. He, did. he treated Judas with the same love, knowing the lostness of Judas and knowing how it would remain that way. He wouldn't change. And just as a side note, Judas, to me, is a humbling reminder for us. It should be Judas. Don't don't just think he's a one-off. There's a lot of people walking around today like Judas that they've been in close proximity to Jesus but don't know him. They've been around people that know Jesus 
but they don't know them. They've been seeing the works of God and they've been They've, they, they've had demonstrated before them the power of God, and they've seen it at work. Judas was there for all the miracles that all the other disciples were there for. Judas was there when they fed the 5,000. Judas was there when he walked on the water. Judas was there for all of this, and yet never came to know him. And that's a warning for you and I. Boy, don't just think because you sit in a church service, because you come on a regular basis, you may even sign up for a Bible study or a small group, that somehow that action itself changes who you are. It gets you in good with God. God, I came every Sunday morning. As a matter of fact, I even went to Sunday school. I, I, I sang in the choir. Boy, I might have even preached. God is saying, look, if, if you don't know who Jesus is, God has a term. He says at the end, he says, I don't know you. Depart from me. It's interesting. I don't know you. And so here's Judas in proximity with the perfect example of humanity. And he rejects it. But Let's not just throw Judas under the bus. That's many people today. They will come in contact with Jesus through his word and through other people, and they will flat out reject it. And it is the saddest thing in the world because after you've met perfection, what else is there for you? I was wondering with Judas, I, I said, after you, you spent three plus years around perfection, what else is there left? And so the attitude, he would love publicly. But also, if you look at Luke's account in chapter 22, verses 24 to 27, you don't have to turn there now, but you can write down and look at that later. If you look at that, when they gathered, John doesn't mention it, but Luke does. When they gathered, it says a dispute arose among them about who among them would be the greatest. This was at Passover meal. And so here it was, they had gathered. No wonder no one was interested in washing anyone's feet. They were too busy trying to figure out who was going to be the man. It said a dispute. They were arguing. Nah, man, I am because, hey, we were close with him. Nah, I was, hey, y'all weren't up on that mountain that day when we went up there. There were just three of us. Y'all weren't included. And so you look at this jockeying for position. They were trying to figure out who was going to be the greatest. As you were celebrating the Passover, God's providing for your sin so that it would be forgiven. And Jesus telling you all along, I am going to be the Passover lamb for you. But they were too blinded by their own quest for greatness. And that sets the scene for Jesus' wonderful example about serving. A serving church in a selfish world starts with servants of his coming together and hitting that selfish world. And so they were arguing about the great. He wasn't swayed by it. He corrected it because for us, if I knew that I was getting ready to give my life for some folk that were trying to figure out who was going to be the man when I left, I would have been like, I'm done with y'all. I'm out. I'm, I'm, Lord, I can't do this. I'm done. I'm done. You can find somebody else. These dudes ain't worth it. But he doesn't do that. But he doesn't turn away. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't get disgusted. That's all the things we would do. I know I would. I don't know about you. Look at his attitude. But the thing that he also knew was how secure he was with his father. And this is what I think trips a lot of us up, us up. It says, Jesus, knowing that God, the father, had given all things into his hands. You understand what that means? All authority was given to him. He says, Jesus knew it. He wasn't trying to figure it out. He wasn't trying to come to terms with it. He knew it. 
it was a fact and said that he knew that the Father had given him a... He knew that if he wanted to, he could have called down angels and dealt with it. He could have done a whole lot of different things, but that wouldn't have been the will of the Father. He could have dealt with Judas right there. He could have said to Judas, today will be your last breath. As a matter of fact, right now, let's just end it. He could have said to Judas, I know exactly what you're going to do. But you know what? Don't worry about it because you're getting ready to hang yourself afterwards. Let me just end it right now for you. What? All authority. All power. When we have that kind of authority and power, how do we respond to people that are out to do us harm? Some of us on our jobs, we get a little bit of power, and we know that there's someone in my office that's trying to make a power play on me, and we go, you done messed with the wrong person today. <laughs> I'm about to use every ounce of what I have and who I am to deal with you. Now, I'm not saying that you don't deal with what's happening around you, but I want you to see it because he had a greater mission. He understood that what I have to do is necessary, and nothing can sidetrack me. But it came from an understanding, him understanding who he was with the Father. Do you understand your relationship with God that would cause you to do even the craziest of things according to your culture? We're going to get into it in a moment. See, so he sat up here and said, understand, understand. He said he knew that God had given him all things. He had come from the Father origin, was returning to the Father, security. Thus, he rose from supper. Look at that. John sets it up and says his love for the Father and for those that the Father has given and his secure relationship, knowing who he was with the Father, allowed him to do what would happen next. And I'm going to say for some of us today, we cannot do some of the things that we still see as beneath us because we don't know who we are in the Father. We still trying to fix ourselves up in front of other people. We still trying to look good. We're still trying to secure our status. And when you do that, when I do that, what that demonstrates is that I am actually insecure. I don't know who I am. When I have to brag and boast about who I am, I don't even believe it. Stand and say, you know, do you know who I am? I want to ask a question. Do you, know, do you know who you are? I don't have to stand up and say I'm the, I just live it out. If I'm the boss, I'm the boss around here. You ain't got to say that. Do what you need to do as a boss. I'm the man in this house. Dude, you ain't got to tell anybody that. Be the man in your house. I'm the woman around here. I'm the one that I'm the breadwinner. And I'm, just live out who you are. Problem is, we don't know who we are. And so when people ask us to do things or when God is calling us to do something, I'm not doing that. Because either we think we are more than we are or we're confused about who we are. Because if someone comes and asks you to do something and you think it's beneath you, you're like, nah, nah, sorry. Mm -mm. And we make nice excuses. God hadn't called me to that. Okay. He might not have, but what has he called you to? And it always seemed to involve that which makes me look good and upfront. I'm going to tell you right now, I fought for years. I, I, I fought for years knowing that God was moving me into this teaching ministry because, and I've told others this because my plan was to be this Christian, I was spiritualizing it, to be this Christian businessman who made money. And, you know, still kept my, you know, kept it going and, and, and got, I was going to be this businessman for you. And yeah, I'd serve and bless the church, but my focus was I'm going to make some money. <laughs> I grew up in the projects and although we had most of what we wanted, I mean, I mean, we had all of what we needed. We had some of what we wanted. I was like, I'm getting out of here. 
And, I, and, and hey, and, and, and as I felt, I remember saying one day, and, and I told someone else this, to my shame, I remember, and in my ignorance, I'm so glad God understands the ignorant. In my ignorance, I knew that God was moving me more to ministry, and I knew what it meant, you know, for my quest for making money. And boy, I remember in my basement one day just said, God, why don't you just go call one of your rich Christians to do this? Why you need me? I was like, I grew up poor. I didn't want to do this. And later I was like, that, did those words actually come out of my mouth? They did. Because I was ignorant and didn't understand. And of course, then I was self-serving. I was self-focused and self-serving. And God took me on this journey to see and to understand that making money, even though we can do that, nothing wrong with it at all. That that was not to be the focal point of my life. And he changed and switched in. And I did have some time in banking. I did have a career in banking for a while. But what God was doing was like, is this, is this what you want to happen? Is this what you want to be the deal? Is, 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 is this all that you want? I remember God reminding me as I had already, you know, I, I had already allowed him to begin to teach and to train. And I just remember after sitting through my second bank robbery that I was there for. And because um, I was a manager, assistant manager at the branch. And I remember my wife after I called to that Friday, second time in six months. And I said, I'm going to be late. Um, she was like, why? What's up? I was like, we were robbed. And um, I just got to stay here to be with the police. And blah, blah, blah. she was like, you were there for it again? Yes, I was, you know, and, and so I still remember those words, you're going to need another job. <laughs> she said, because this is not cool. Second time, I remember that. Forum Credit Union branch down there in Greenwood, strong arm robbery. Um, and, and it was just, it, but God had already been speaking to my heart, and it was so... Is this going to be it, Curtis? Not that a robbery should end your career, you know, but, but it was like, is this going to be it? And I was like, I think I'm done, Lord. <laughs> See, the deal is, what is it that is at the focal point of your life? Is it serving the Lord even in your capacity? Serving the Lord doesn't mean everyone is in quote-unquote full-time ministry. You are serving the Lord in wherever you are and whatever he has you doing in whatever field or endeavor, whatever it is. But if your focus is just gaining in your career, you are going to go against the will of God at some point. If your focus is just making money like mine was, you are going to go against the will of God at some point. If it is building your status or your brand is the focal point of your life. I'm not saying that you can't do that. You can't. But if that's the focal point of your life, you are going to intersect against the will of God at some point. Because when you are the focus, God is not. That's a reminder to us. And God is, and God is going to call you at times to be uncomfortable. I'm just going to tell you he is. When you look at the life of Jesus, there is very little comfort in what's about to happen. The ultimate servant. And so the attitude, the actions of the servant, the other three, I promise you, are not as long as the first one. The first one had to set up. But the next one is not only would... His attitude propel him, or I'm sorry, not only would his attitude be what was needed, it would propel him into what he was to do. It says he knew that he came from God, was going to God. Do you see the bookends? For you and me, that was, I am born of God as a believer. And one day I am returning to God as a believer because I know him. So I should be able to do anything in between. Anything. Lord, what is it? Oh, but it's going to mess up my gig. Your gig? Wow. What gig? God says, you're born of me. You came from me. And one day you will return from me. There's a lot of things in, embedded in that. When you return to him, number one, whatever gig you have here is going to end. Whatever you got going on is going to stop. And probably before then, 
because we can't do everything up until the day. Some of us, we're doing some things now, some things we're going to have to scale back, some things we have to scale back. Ask any athlete. Hey, we always say to any athlete, Father Time has never lost. But I could say that with anyone in any field, Father Time has never lost. Because you may be that corporate exec on the high. You won't always be that corporate exec on the high. You may be that school teacher of the year. You won't always be the school teacher of the year. You may be employee of the month of the year of the decade, but that's going to end too. See, all of it is going, you have a beginning and you have an end. What you do in between shows where your focus is. Someone says, life in between the bookends, or as I heard one person say, life in the dash. You know what the dash is, right? That when they talk about your date of birth and your date of death and there's a dash in between, that's your life. And so how you serve in the dash will determine what's been your focus. And so he said he rose. And when he rose, I'm sure if, if, if there could have been cameras in that room, the shock, the embarrassment, and the horror on their faces. Because when he said he rose, he, his actions, he laid aside his garment. He laid them aside, took them off, and that which distinguished him as a rabbi, that which they knew him as, he took that off. And so he's just probably in his loincloth or something underneath, and he gets a towel that they usually have wrapped it around himself so he could begin the white feet, and I, everyone knew what he was doing. Now, remember, this is the group that just finished arguing who was going to be the greatest. And none of them were going to get up and wash, as my mother would say, nah, one of their feet. <laughs> Not one. He was like, me? Wash yours? Nah, man, I ain't touching your crusties, bro. Nah. <laughs> Number one, that means I'm lower than you, and I'm just finished arguing that I'm greater than you. Not doing that. No one did. And so Jesus was like, lesson time. He gets up, wraps it around, comes around, pours water in the basin. And I know they are looking at him like, what is he doing? But no one, except one, there's always one, no one dare say anything. They were probably afraid and in shock and horror and probably utterly embarrassed. And Jesus starts to wash and realize that he didn't start with Peter because it says, and he came to Peter. And so he's washing, and they're all probably just sitting there like, what is happening? Washing, drying, and he gets to Peter. Peter's like, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Peter's always the Vulcan one, but he is, Peter is usually that one, but you know what? He represents so many of us. Peter is that guy where the instructions are open mouth and insert foot. (laughs) Because Peter always seems to get himself in trouble when he thinks he's saving the day. But he is so like us. He goes out of total ignorance and misunderstanding. Jesus' actions are he starts to serve in a way that is culturally taboo. Understand, it was culturally okay for no one to get up and to wash feet. There wasn't anything wrong with that. What they were saying is feet just won't be washed today. Because there's no slave among us. That was culturally okay. But what Jesus was saying is, boy, sometimes when you are serving me, you will have to go against your own cultural norms. And for some of us, we're like, ah, nah, that's where I'm out, God. Because I'm down with the culture, man. I don't want to be labeled a sellout. I don't want to be labeled someone that turns against culture for the sake of Christ. But God says, don't you realize that since you are in Christ, that you are shaping culture? Actually, you are reshaping it. You are transforming. Do you know every culture bears the marks of sin? Every. I know we like to focus on just a few, but every. 
Every last one of our cultures bears the marks of the original sin. And so there are flaws in every culture. In ours, you can find it. In others and theirs. And, 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 and I've heard the different stories that, 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 that there are cultural norms that are sinfully flawed. And God says, he says, here's one. No one would dare get up and do that which was needed because it is too beneath them. And so he comes around and starts. But not only was he doing that, he wasn't giving them a pattern of washing feet. Jesus' actions was a prelude to the cross. What he is saying is that, hey, I'm doing something that is shocking and unheard of right now. But what I'm getting ready to do is going to be even more shocking and unheard of, which is why you will reject it. What was he getting ready to do that would be shocking? In their thought, the idea of a suffering Messiah did not make sense. Part of why they didn't recognize him on the, on the road to Emmaus. Why? Because it didn't make sense. When you, when you read the Luke account, they said something clear. They said, we had hoped that he would. In other words, they had it all written out about how the Messiah was going to deliver and save them, and it did not include the heinous beatdown he would receive through, through crucifixion. It didn't include that. No one included that because Messiahs don't suffer, except that's exactly what the word prophesied when he talked about the suffering servant. As a matter of fact, what they missed was in Job God introduces us early on to the fact that the righteous suffer. There's nothing that Job did wrong. As a matter of fact, God was bragging on him. But what God was about to allow to be unleashed on him was out of the norm, which is why his quote-unquote friends thought he was lying and had some secret sin in his life. And so what he is telling us here, he says, listen, I am showing you just a prelude to the demonstration of my love in that I am willing to step way beneath me, but I'm going to step way, way beneath me and allow myself to be beat and crucified by the people I came to die for. Service. God is calling us as servants to be able to sometimes oppose the culture so that we can reshape the culture. But if you are too busy trying to look good for the culture, you're going to miss it. And so then, not only then, his actions, a couple of questions for you, though, before we go on. What is culturally, wait, what is culturally acceptable not to do that God is calling you to do? What is it? And it's been gnawing at you, but you're like, nah, I can't do that, God. You know what that's going to do for me? How are you letting the culture dictate your actions instead of the mission and the love of God? How are you letting the culture dictate your actions instead of the mission and the love of God? But then it's the, the opposition. The opposition is one of ignorance, confusion, and anger. Messiahs don't wash feet. They stand and are privileged and they teach. Messiahs don't suffer on a cross. They just take over and deliver. But that was wrong. Messiahs do whatever, or the only Messiah, do what, what, whatever is necessary or what is called for by God. We do that today. We do it with people. Pastors can't do that. And I would say, why not? That's for so-and-so. Or I can't do that. I won't do that. I, hey, it's too uncomfortable. God says, can you take a look at the pattern that I've set? Can you tell me what was uncomfortable about, about having Passover with the man that you knew was going to betray you when this was over, that you, that you humbly served the person that you knew would lead you to your death. 
giving him every opportunity not to be that person. And so Jesus handles the opposition. Understand what he does. The opposition, Peter's opposition is out of ignorance. It is out of really just being culturally correct. And really, he was indignant. His response, you wash my feet, what he's saying is you will never. He's like, you going to wash my feet? We've done that before. Oh, no, 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 oh, no, no. And then he says, and he says, you will never, it will never happen. How it's actually constructed, it will never happen that you wash my feet. And it was out of ignorance that he did it. He didn't understand. And so whenever Jesus says, and he says, he says, hey, look, if I don't wash you, which understand, yes, this, was, it, this wasn't about foot, uh, foot washing at this point. He was saying, if, I, if you are not made clean by me, you can't share in a relationship with me. Jesus was telling him. And so Peter still didn't understand. He said, then wash all of me, Lord. Just, just wash me, all of me, head, feet. Uh, and Peter just doesn't realize how much of his ignorance that he's sharing. And Jesus bears with him. But look at what he says. He said, no, 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 Peter, you don't understand. The way he handles opposition is through truth. He says, look, a person that is bathed doesn't need, now he's going back to the culture, a person that bathes doesn't need to wash only their feet. Why? Because you've been walking these dusty roads. You walk in from a dusty road, you don't need to step in and take a whole nother bath, you just need to wash your feet. What he is saying is, listen, I have cleansed you guys, although he says not all of you, because although I'm washing one of you guys' feet, the washing of the feet does not symbolize cleansing from sin, Judas. He would not be cleansed. That's why he said not all of you are clean. And he says it there, but he says, you all have been made clean because of the word. In other words, what I am giving you and the word that I am giving you and soon the death for your sins will cleanse you. But where you will need continual cleansing is what we get in 1 John, that if we sin, we have an advocate. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Now, are we starting all over that we need to be totally cleansed? No. He says, you are mine. You are cleaned from your sins. But the feet, which represents your daily walk, gets dirty at times, and all of our walks get dirty at times. We sin as we walk through this life, and, 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 and what Christ is saying is that I am making it possible that you can be cleaned as you walk. But I love this. Jesus wasn't instituting foot washing. I know people like to do this. He wasn't instituting foot washing. What he was saying is, at the end, the next thing is the example the example of the ultimate service, he, he says, look, what I've, do you understand what I've done to you? I love this. He didn't say for you. He said to you. What I've done is I am cleansing, I have cleansed and am cleansing you totally, but I am also making provision that as you live and as you walk, that your daily sins can be forgiven. As your feet get dirty in the world, walking around. But then he says, I've left you a pattern. There's that simplicity pattern again. I've left you a pattern. What's the pattern? That you aid in the cleansing of your brothers from their daily sins. How? By being just like I was. Humble enough to do whatever is necessary. And we go, I ain't doing that for that dude. I'm tired. Of, I'm, 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 not, I'm not doing that for her. She just won't be clean. And Lord is saying, but that's not the pattern I left. What you're going to come out with is a blouse with one sleeve too long and too short. It's not going to look like me. It's not going to represent me. Why? Because I've left you a pattern that you should follow. What's the pattern that you should follow? That you will humbly do whatever it takes to accomplish the mission of God. There is nothing beneath you as a believer. There is no place where you can't serve. As a matter of fact, the inconvenience is not to be on your list. God is uncomfortable. And God has empowered you and I to forge ahead so much stronger than we do.
but we back up and we make reasons, excuses for why we can't. I can't tell you what to do. That's between you and the Lord. I'm not even going to sit up here and pretend to tell you what to do. I don't know. God knows. He was the one speaking to your heart. He is the one saying, I want you to get busy, not just to be busy, but to be on mission, to be on task, for you to be able to do what is necessary. And the only way you will is if you take on the attitude of the ultimate servant, which leads to the actions of the ultimate servant. Dealing with the opposition that comes from ignorance, ignorance and cultural relevance. And then you become an example and a pattern for others. As we end this today, look at this. Understand, understand well, God is calling for us to get uncomfortable. What may God be calling you to do that you believe is too small, too humbling, or too menial for you? What may God be calling you to do that you believe is too small, too humbling, and too menial? It's beneath you. Next question. How are you looking for the things, how are you looking for the things that make you look good instead of what God is calling for? How are you looking for those things that just makes you look good, that everybody's going to praise you for? Oh, look at him serving over there. Oh, look at her serving over there. What are ways in which you can humbly wash another's feet, help someone else's life to be cleansed in Christ by your actions? What are the ways in which you can humbly wash another's feet with your actions? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have called us, Lord, to be on mission and task, looking at Jesus, our ultimate example. Father, Philippians says that he took on the form of a servant. He emptied himself, with the, which that scripture means he laid aside those privileges. He didn't think that equality with God was something that he had to exploit or to grasp at or to hold on to. But he says, but he took on the form of a servant. And Father, as he laid aside those garments and took on flesh, he came among us, and then after coming among us, he resumed his place in heaven. And he gave us that example in this foot washing. And I pray, God, that we see that. Lord, that we see how you are calling us. You are calling us on mission into action. Knowing that it will be uncomfortable, knowing that it will hurt, knowing that it will lead, Lord, to misunderstanding, knowing that people will look at us crazy, knowing, Lord, that it may take us out of the cultural norm, but God, knowing that it is exactly what you call for. I pray that we don't miss it, trying to be, trying to look good for others around us. I pray that we lean in to what you want, Father. And for any today that don't know you, I pray that this is an opportunity for them to do just that. Father, we surrender to you. You call, Lord, for us to live according to your will in holiness, as they sang earlier, Lord. But then you also call for us to serve, O oh God, humbly with nothing being beneath us. And by doing that, Lord, we demonstrate to the world that you exist in our real as we set an example for others to follow after. Father, strengthen us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. I'm asking you to keep your head bowed.